Welcome to the sixth edition of News of the Church. It's the 27th of December, 2023, a few, just a few more days left in this year, and it is the Wednesday in the octave of Christmas and the Feast of St. John the Evangelist. Some time ago, I saw a movie with Tom Hanks called News of the World, in which he plays a Civil War, for a former Confederate officer from the Civil War who's eking out a living by going from town to town and reading to people who pay a dime a head to listen, uh, various newspapers, newspaper stories from all over the place. And so he's a, a traveling gazetteer. And uh, I go into the etymology and the, the background of where the word gazette comes from in the very first edition of these news of the churchy things. Uh, the idea caught my imagination, so I, I decided to become a gazetteer for you. Last time, I read to you from the newsletter of the Latin Liturgy Association, and it was number 144. I'm going to go back to this issue because there's um, something in here from Father Dwight Longenecker entitled, Why Catholic Worship Appeals to Men. And as I... Um, as I, just as I look at the title here, I'm reminded of something that Cardinal Heenan of Westminster said the first time he saw the Novus Ordo. He said uh, that uh, the only people who are going to go to this are going to be women and children. Um, okay, let's go. Some men of the parish, Our Lady of the Rosary Church in Greenville, South Carolina, wanted to make a retreat before Lent, so I suggested we head to the hills for a Benedictine experience. We rented a cabin at a retreat center in the mountains, and I packed a car with everything we needed for Catholic worship. Once there, I set up an altar with a crucifix and candles, placed a statue of the Blessed Virgin on a pedestal by the side, and set twenty chairs and rows facing each other. We were going to do our best to recreate the atmosphere and schedule of a Benedictine monastery for 48 hours. Spending the weekend with other men on retreat got me thinking about why Catholicism continues to have an appeal for men that other religions lack. I am convinced that the answer is liturgy. To, can, to understand why, we have to remember how men's brains are wired. It's well known that the right hemisphere of the brain controls our more intuitive, creative, and emotional functions, while the left half of the brain controls the more mathematical and logical functions of thought. Further studies of brain function have shown that men's brains make connection within each hemisphere of the brain, while women's brains are better at making connections across the hemispheres. To put it simply, women are better at relationships and making connections between their perception of reality, people, and emotions, while men compartmentalize their experience. Because of this common disconnect from our emotions, men sometimes seem uncaring or unsympathetic, but it also means we are able to take on tasks without our emotions interfering. A friend explained, that's why the man who has to provide food for his family can go out and shoot a deer, while the woman might cry for poor Bambi, whose mother was killed. What makes the Catholic religion more attractive to men than other forms of worship is because Catholic worship is liturgical. 
On our retreat, the men were given a monastic schedule of prayer. We recited Vespers at six in the evening and Compline at nine. We got up at Lauds at six in the morning and said Terse at nine, Sext at twelve, and Non at three. The chairs were in straight lines. The prayers were established, the rules were observed, and discipline expected. The discipline of schedules, calendars, and the orderly objectivity of the liturgy, just say the black and do the red. Gosh, that sounds kind of a familiar phrase, isn't it? Just say the black and do the red appeals to the way men are wired in a way that more freewheeling emotional and subjective worship does not. This is why the feminization of the liturgy is so unattractive to men. When well-meaning liturgists and priests feel they have to make everything in the liturgy emotionally relevant and meaningful to everyone, many men switch off. When Father Fabulous insists on being emotionally entertaining in the liturgy, he is likely to please the women while men roll their eyes. While Sister Sandals develops New Age liturgies that attempt to connect with our emotions, or when Father when Pastor Hipster tries to push the emotional hot buttons with his sermon, most men are not only ready to switch off, they're ready to head for the door. Traditional Catholic worship, on the other hand, is by the book and objective. Men perceive it as being dependable and rock-solid, not emotional, subjective, and flighty. Does that mean that a man's emotions are completely disengaged in Catholic worship? Not at all. It's just that certain more masculine feelings are likely to be engaged through the objectivity, reliability, and established routine of Catholic worship. In reverent Catholic worship, a man is more likely to experience the emotions of loyalty and nobility that come with a commitment to a set and objective form of worship. Within traditional Catholic worship, a man is more likely to experience strong emotions of love and admiration for a religion that has withstood the tests of time and persecution. With the high expectations of Catholic liturgy, orthodoxy, and morality, a man is more likely to feel the emotions of solidarity with his brothers and determination to persevere in the face of hardship. The objectivity of the liturgy, along with the traditional accoutrement of Catholic worship, help men access the proper apprehension of timeless beauty, truth, and goodness. In this way, his heart opens in awe and wonder at the goodness of God and the richness of the Catholic faith. Well, that's very good and uh, quite thought-provoking. We like the reference to say the black and do the red, whenever he got that. I'm also reminded of uh, something that I've read in a couple of different places, that um, men, when they relate to each other, tend to sit side by side, and women tend to face each other, which would, of course, have, a, have consequences for the orientation of liturgical worship, whether it's versus populum or ad orientem. I received another newsletter from the Benedictine Monks in Silverstream Abbey, which is in Ireland. And it's there, coming from Ireland, it's late, and so we're already at Christmas, but this is their Advent issue. Um, all of these newsletters have a, a chronicle of some sort. And it's just nice to hear what they're doing, you know, what they're up to. So here's the Chronicle from the Advent 2003 newsletter called Inchenaculo 
from the Benedictine monks of Silverstream Priory. As the liturgical and calendar years look to start a new cycle, the monastery has been fuller than ever with the arrival of five new inquirers to consider our way of life here since the beginning of October. Almost all the choir stalls in our oratory are now full, and there is hardly a spare room, and we are beginning to push the walls a bit in the refectory. Although most spaces around the monastery remain the same, we have continued construction on our external parlor and made good progress. A number of the brothers and inquirers have been helping with the work by fixing up some of the walls. We give thanks for the increase and growth that our Lord is giving to us, and we continue to ask for your assistance in the necessary work of building all that is needed to sustain our growth. God's timing is infallible, and he is drawing more souls to participate in this work of adoration and reparation for his church. On the topic of reparation, we also introduced a slight modification in the ceremony of our daily act of reparation that we have found to be very fitting and beautiful. Until the end of October, after exposing the Most Blessed Sacrament and the Monstrance, the celebrant of the conventual Mass would depart from the oratory with the ministers and would participate in the act of reparation from outside the oratory. After reflection, we altered this to make sure that the celebrant and ministers are present in the oratory during the act of reparation. Though it's a tight fit to have everyone lie prostrate in the oratory, we find it a marvelous expression of the role of the priesthood and the unity between the reparator, the holy sacrifice of the Mass, and the reparation that our Lord performs in and through us. As only monastery of monks of perpetual adoration in the world, it is a unique gift to demonstrate the link so tangibly between our daily act of reparation and our Lord's supreme act of reparation of the Mass. We had a triduum of adoration from October 30th to November 1st in preparation for the Feast of All Saints. A number of people joined us from around the area to pray and to make reparation for the festivals of darkness that take place on and around Halloween and for all those who participate therein. On the feast itself, a massive storm blew through and toppled one of our large trees across the entryway to the monastery. Thankfully, various people were able to jump to it and cut up the tree so that people wouldn't remain trapped in the monastery. It left a hole in one of our walls, but at least it gave us plenty of firewood for the winter. The following day, All Souls Day, the priests of the monastery each celebrated three requiem masses for the repose of the faithful departed. Father Subprior celebrated the conventual Mass and performed the absolutions over the catafalque in the oratory. The community then proceeded to the cemetery, where Father Subprior again performed the absolutions as the community chanted the various hymns and antiphons for the repose of the departed. A high point of our chronicle occurred at the end of November when the diocese organized 40 hours of adoration from Friday 24th November to Sunday 26th November, for their titular Feast of Christ the King. The forty hours began with Mass on Friday evening and concluded with Vespers and Solemn Benediction by the Bishop of Maith on Sunday. Several of the brothers went to the cathedral on the two nights that adoration was taking place and participated in the all-night adoration. 
being able to join in with the whole diocese and participate with a larger group of adorers at the cathedral was a wonderful blessing and powerful witness to the life-giving strength that flows from our Lord in the most blessed sacrament, Laudetur Sacrosanctum et Augustissimum Sacramentum in Eternum. Finally, we decided to move forward on a few special initiatives for this Advent, beginning with live-streaming Vespers and the addition of homilies for Sunday Vespers. The first homily that Father Pryor gave was a reflection on the various antiphons and the different ways in which they express the theme of joy that is present during Advent and that prepares us for the coming of our Savior. In addition to live-streaming Vespers, we will be having two triduums of adoration during Advent, one leading up to the Feast of the Immaculate Conception and one stretching from the 20th of December to the 22nd of December. We hope to continue these triduums of adoration more frequently in the coming year and offer the faithful more ways of participating in the adoration despite not being able to be physically present at the monastery. We hope that an abundance of graces may shower upon you all from our Lord's Eucharistic heart. Well, that was quite nice. I'm heartened to hear about the 40 hours. 40 hours devotion was something that developed um, out of the council, especially after the Council of Trent among the Barnabites and among uh, you know various saints of that period uh, promoted it uh, eventually in Rome and through the confraternities and then it grew throughout the world. But it was originally something that developed uh, to ask God to avert evils, whether it was plague or invasion, uh, something like that, things that threaten the church. I once preached a 40 hours devotion uh, where some, we, we emphasized an increase in vocations of the priesthood because the decrease in vocation certainly threatens the church. There are many, many good reasons to revive 40 hours devotion. Once upon a time in dioceses, it was going on everywhere, and they would even publish schedules of it in public newspapers where it was going to be taking place. And um, it's a beautiful event. It's still, the um, celebration of 40 hours devotion is still the only time now in which it's possible to celebrate Mass in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament Exposed. I have here the newsletter of the Fraternity of St. Peter in England, which is called Our Lady's Dowry. No, it's just called Dowry, not Our Lady's Dowry. England is known as Our Lady's Dowry. This is just called Dowry. It's the winter edition, uh, issue number 60. And there is a piece in here by a seminarian, uh, Stepan Androich, I think that's how it's pronounced. I'm not Croatian. Uh, he describes the life of, and work of his fellow Croatian, Blessed Ivan Mertz, who lived from 1896 to 1928. It says, Ivan Mertz, a youth passionate for the liturgy. And please, uh, uh, Croatians out there, please forgive me. Philologist, teacher, literary critic, youth activist, lover of liturgy, Ivan Meritz was all of these things and much more. Although born into a nominal Catholic family in Banja Luka, present-day Bosnia and Herzegovina, this young man would eventually become one of the most renowned saintly figures in his country's history. 
Ivan Meritz was a man of strong faith and wide culture. Apart from his deep piety, Meritz was known throughout his life as a prolific writer and tireless Catholic activist. His writings on the topics ranging from the Catholic faith, the modern society, all the way to the psychology of the Christian soul, remain highly relevant. His literary talent, Mertz developed early on in his life through passionate reading of classical literature and frequent journal writing. In fact, Mertz's journal, which he began keeping at age 17, remains for us the main source of insight into his personal life and innermost ponderings. It can be broadly described as a testimony of one young Catholic man's struggle for sanctity and truth in a world that too often denies both. Ivan Meritz lived at a time when the zeitgeist of the fin de siècle had already begun to take its toll upon the modern world. Personally, witnessing the horrors of World War I, Meritz was led to a firm conviction that the true cause of man's misery lay with his abandonment of God and religion. His post-war years were spent in Vienna and later Paris, where he studied literature. There he came into direct contact with the beauty of European culture, but also the pessimism of many of his contemporaries. Unlike them, however, Mertz saw light at the end of the tunnel. That light was the Catholic Church, her teaching, her sacraments, and last but not least, her liturgy became to him the source of hope for a man trapped by the modern spirit of despair. Moved by the beauties of the Mass, Mertz eventually chose to write his doctoral thesis on the influence of Catholic liturgy upon French writers. This thesis, originally published in French, shows us a man of remarkable critical talent and a palpable sense for the otherworldly. Mertz argued that the beauty of Catholic liturgy was an instrumental element in shaping French writers' aesthetic sensibilities, and hence fundamentally influenced the literary works they produced. Mertz thus succeeded at proving once more the old truth that religion and culture are not two separate, but intimately intertwined realities. Where religion flourishes, so does culture and vice versa. Thus, this conclusion remains highly pertinent even today. Far from being a mere add-on to Christian life, our liturgy still is, ultimately, the primary way we offer worship to God, and therefore we ought to labor to have its own beauty reflect the transcendent beauty of God. Blessed Ivan Meritz knew and lived this reality like few others. All the way up to his death, he frequented daily masses at the Jesuit Basilica of the Sacred Heart in Zagreb. He often spoke of the central place that the sacrifice of the Mass has in the life of a Catholic. Quote, the best way we can experience the strength of Christianity is to allow the life of Christ to touch us through the gospel and liturgy. Close quote. Perhaps this thought, more than any other, offers advice for our current time. The start of our transformation in Christ begins there where heaven and earth touch the very words of his sacrifice, This is my body. This is my blood. Well, a nice reflection on someone who I had previously never heard of. And I'm wagering that you probably hadn't heard from him either, unless you may be a Croatian. Uh, there's a couple pieces, a couple bits in here that's important. This whole deal um, sounds very much like the teaching that uh, the Eucharist, by which we mean 
the Eucharist itself, but also the, its celebration, that is the holy sacrifice of the Mass, are both the fons et culmen, the font or source, and the summit or destination, the goal of all of Catholic Christian life. All that we do flows from it, and then all that we have is brought back to it and offered back to God within it. And so there's a constant interplay between all that we are and do and everything that God wants to give us through the liturgy. Remember, he is the true actor in all of our liturgical actions. All the words are his. He uses our bodies and our gestures and so forth. But he is the true actor. He's the high priest. And he gives us shares in his priesthood. Some is ordained and some is the baptized. But um, we are all then made able to offer uh, pleasing sacrifices. And so we take all that we have and we offer them back to him. Sometimes our our needs are great and we can even mindfully put them into the chalice with those little drops of water representing our humanity to be taken up into the greater substance, the wine that will be transformed into Christ's saving blood, asking him to pour out his precious blood upon us and upon all our needs. The other dynamic that's a kind of a simultaneous dialogue going on is underscored in this piece between what the world has to give and what the church has to give. The world has a great deal to give to the church, and the church has a great deal to give to the world. And in this process called enculturation, we must always give what the church has to give the world a logical priority. Because if we turn that around and give the priority what the world has to give, then it all crashes down, as we've seen really in the, in the last in the last decades in, in many places. What this, this process of enculturation has given us some of the, well, it's, it's underscored in what is being talked about here in this, this article about the contribution of Catholic liturgy to French writers, French literature. If you think of architecture, I don't have to go on about this. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, speaking of Zagreb, I have an article here from the the Guardian of the 21st of December. British girl, eight, crowned best female player at European chess tournament. Yeah, maybe not everyone is really into chess, but I just thought this was, this is really amusing. Bodana Sivanandan, who got into chess accidentally three years ago, described as a phenomenon. A British schoolgirl who made chess history after she beat a master more than 30 years her senior at an international competition got into chess accidentally, her father has revealed. Bogdana Sivanandan, 8, from Harrow, northwest of London, was crowned best female player at the European Rapid and Blitz Championship in Zagreb, Croatia, the, at the weekend. Let's see, skipping down a little bit. Um, it said, um, let's see, she was awarded the under 12 prize as well as finishing top of the English con contingent, but there was a one prize per player rule, so she chose the women's award. Her overall tournament rating performance of 2316 was at women grandmaster level. Asked if she went into the tournament expecting to win, she replied, 
I always try to, my best to win all the tournaments, all the games. Sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. Well, you know, that's, that's about it. Skipping a bit, Baldana, who started playing chess at the age of five during the coronavirus pandemic after she found a chessboard in pieces in a bag given by her father's friend, has said that she is not sure of her chance, what of her chances for the upcoming International Chess Congress in Hastings, East Sussex. Anyway, I really enjoy watching these kids. Uh, there's a, a, a girl from my native place in Minnesota named Alice Lee, who I think is 14 years old, and it's kind of fun to see her mop the floor with grandmasters twice her age. Here is the Regina Chaley report, the August and September number, which oddly just arrived in my mail. I'm not sure why it's so late. It's number 311. Uh, Regina Chaley report is the newsletter of the Society of St. Pius X uh, in these United States. And this edition is a report on a new priory for the Twin Cities. We mean, of course, the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul in Minnesota, which is my native place. I just mentioned that uh, in conjunction with Alice Lee. Uh, though pretty much the whole thing has has news about their about the activity in Minnesota and Wisconsin, and also in Colorado, and it's really too much. There's too much to read about it here, but I'll just give you a little intro. July 2nd, 1979 is the birthday of the, Saint, of the Society of St. Pius X's mission in the Twin Cities. Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre had visited the area a few years earlier, and at that time priests only offered the traditional Mass in the area on occasion. That July marked the first of the many Masses to be offered on a regular basis. The chapel took its first name from the heavenly patrons of that day, Saints Processus and Martinian, the one-time jailers of St. Paul. I remember that little church. You'd go across the, the high bridge, across the river, and yeah, anyway, I digress. Growth came quickly as word spread of the presence of the SSPX in Minnesota. Soon, rented hotel ballrooms were insufficient for the number of people who desired the traditional Latin Mass. A Lutheran church on the edge of St. Paul was purchased and transformed into a beautiful chapel worthy of the Catholic liturgy. The St. Paul mission was not immune to the turbulence that struck the Society's U.S. district in the early 1980s. Only two years after its purchase and renovation, the, church, the new church fell into the hands of those who made their disagreements with the SSPX public. This relegated the society's work back to hotel ballrooms, then to Sunday rentals of the military base chaplain at Fort Snelling near the Minneapolis-St. Paul Airport. Some measure of consistency came with the use of a community room in a northeast Minneapolis high-rise. During this time, gosh, you know, just think about how people have been doing driven from pillar to post just because they want the traditional Roman rite. During this time, to distinguish this community from those occupying the church building from which it had been evicted, 
the mission was renamed Immaculate Heart of Mary. In 1988, due especially to the offer to the efforts of Gordon and Catherine Shearman, ownership of the previously purchased church building was legally restored to the SSPX. This happened around the same time as the move of St. Thomas Aquinas Seminary from Ridgefield, Connecticut to Winona, two hours southeast of St. Paul. That's where uh, Robert Barron is bishop now. Priests, uh, they've moved, they've since built a uh, huge, <laughs> beautiful seminary in, in Virginia. And I believe the, the, the place in Winona, which had been a, a Dominican priory, thus, thus the name St. Thomas Aquinas, I think it's now used for formation of brothers associated with the SSPX, but I could be wrong about that. Um, going back here, let's see. Priests came from the seminary location to serve as pastors for the mission, beginning with Father Wolfgang Göttler. He was replaced in 1989 by Father Dominique Bourmont. Okay, well, anyway, it, there are many pictures in here, some some old pictures going back. And um, it talks about uh, the Immaculate Heart of Mary uh, Academy. It's a big school. They've got a 20... 23 IHM school photo here with an enormous number of children. And um, there are a few uh, familiar names in here uh, for me since I grew up there. So anyway, that's a, just a note from, from the SSPX's Regina Chaley report. First Things has something on their site on the 25th of December, Christmas Day, by James A. Hamill. Chaplain Colonel James A. Hamill is a priest of the Archdiocese of Newark and an Air Force chaplain currently serving as the command chaplain for Pacific Air Forces in Honolulu, Hawaii. And he has a piece called Good Priests, Good Soldiers. I hear the word clericalism a lot these days. Depending on which Catholic journals or blogs you read, it's either a rampant scourge upon our church, or it's hardly a problem at all. The term is pejorative and often directed at younger priests. It implies a pronounced haughtiness, intransigence, and the use of authority for the sake of domination. I must admit that I have met very few Catholic priests who exhibit those traits. I have met a lot of them, and they aren't the traditional ones. Yet clericalism has been named by some as the central obstacle to the Church fulfilling her mission, as the reason why mass attendance and vocations are down, and as the cause of sexual abuse in the Church. That strikes me as a facile explanation for some of the Church's greatest challenges. Recently, a Catholic journal published an essay by a priest who is also a seminary professor. In it, he likened serving as a priest today to serving in the military. As someone who is both a priest and a military officer, this analogy grabbed my attention. I have been a priest for 32 years, with 24 of those years as a military chaplain. I, too, see many overlapping traits in good priests and in good soldiers, qualities such as self-sacrifice, integrity, a desire to continually learn, humility, 
a strong sense of morality, self-control, and a wish to pursue excellence. And all those virtues must be striven for, oftentimes in the face of indifference or outright hostility from broader society. As a senior priest in the Air Force, I see many successive classes of new priest recruits entering active duty. They are younger than I and of a different generational mindset. Most of these men answered the call to priesthood in a world that had been through 9-11, been through the abuse scandal of 2002, and been through the Theodore McCarrick scandal of 2018. Rather than growing up in a culture where the church and priesthood were held in high regard, as I did, and when priests were afforded more perks and respected more than they are today, they have grown up seeing a church pilloried from all corners, with priests as the punchline of many debauched jokes. Nonetheless, they have boldly stepped forward to serve. Who are these men, and what motivates them? I will be the first to admit that I don't always share their tastes in clerical or liturgical attire, many of which I believe they will moderate as they get older, nor do I possess a sentimental nostalgia about a church and culture and liturgy that existed before I was born. But I also must admit that I often don't exhibit their sense of Catholic evangelical zeal either. And it is that zeal that I think many people are observing and mislabeling as clericalism. In my experience, younger priests are not haughty and entitled in any greater measure than their older colleagues. They do not think they are better than other people. Rather, they fully embrace the military-like sacrifice that their calling demands and try to live a counter-cultural lifestyle. They do so proudly and willingly. The thought of working long hours for low pay, of dressing distinctively, and of doing something radically different from their friends, to say nothing of the discipline of celibacy, appeals to them. The harder and more different, the better. They are proud to represent and defend the theology of an oft-beleaguered church, just as the soldier is proud to wear the flag of his country on his uniform behind enemy lines. Like priests, the most elite forces in any branch of the military stand out as different from the rest of us. They are physically different. They have their own jargon. They carry themselves with an extra measure of pride and self-confidence. We need them to possess those traits. But we don't then turn around and accuse them of militarism. That's because most of them are also humble and hardworking. Sure, we may tease them, but it's only because we admire them and because they are different. If they truly acted like they were better than us, the teasing would cease to be good-natured. The seminary professor who penned that essay got me to think about priesthood and military service in a new way. The young men that both of us work with are not principally clericalists, with all the negative connotations ascribed to, ascribed to that word. They are, rather, countercultural men who feel called and who are invigorated by evangelizing our secular society. In fact, they see themselves bearing witness to Jesus Christ in an increasingly anti-Christian, anti-religious culture. Young priests, I salute you. Thank you for taking on a harder mission than was required of previous generations of priests. And though you may feel called to stay in the trenches of parish life, I further challenge you to consider serving the Lord and your fellow citizens as a military chaplain. The need for good priests like yourselves in our military has never been greater. Aim high. Well, it was very good. 
I like that. And notice how it <laughs> dovetails back with what I read from Father Dwight uh, Longenecker at the beginning, the ideal of you know, discipline and order and so forth. You know, clericalism, yes, it has a, a, a bad connotation. It's negative, uh, even in the dictionary. Um, I used to, in fighting against this false narrative about clericalism, I used to host suppers for the promotion of clericalism just among priest friends and so forth. And they were all very, they were all very clerical in a lot of ways, but they were very also relaxed and, and social and cordial and just to kind of be together. We need to, uh, we need to be apart. That's what being a cleric is. We need to be apart and, um, and spend time with each other and help uh, uh, support each other and build our identity. It's interesting what he talks about in here the different experiences that young men come out of who are choosing to be priests today truly yes we we have to salute them and of course they came out of the john paul ii and benedict the 16th period didn't they hmm? and my understanding is is that uh in many places in the first world in the last few years vocations are down and they may be down for various reasons there comes to mind i'm just going to pause for a second and look this up i know that i have it on the sidebar of the blog hang on all right yes here it is it's a it's a quote from saint john Ude. the most evident mark of god's anger and the most terrible castigation he can inflict upon the world are manifested when he permits his people to fall into the hands of clerics who are priests more in name than in deed, priests who practice the cruelty of ravening wolves rather than the charity and affection of devoted shepherds. And I think that what we see in a lot of our young priests are certainly the latter, the charity and affection of devoted shepherds. But there still are around quite a few of that other type. And they are not, in my experience, on the traditional side of things. Well, with that, I will wrap this up. I thank you very much for your attention. And I would ask you to pray for me, as I will for you. And Merry Christmas. And a Happy New Year of Grace.